The following message is brought to you by MacArthur Boulevard Baptist Church. We are many stories made one family by one gospel. If you would like to connect with us, please check out our website at MacArthurBoulevard.org. As you're seated, open your Bibles, turn them on, however you access the Word of God, and let's find James chapter 4 together this morning. James 4, we're going to look at verses 6 through 10. James 4, 6 through 10, as we continue our series, a little brief series in between books of the Bible, uh, where we're looking at the topic of spiritual warfare. This will take us into October. In October, we're going to start a journey through the book of Revelation together. Now, so far in our series on spiritual warfare, we have laid a pretty, a pretty firm foundation, making sure that we understand rightly the enemy that we face, that we understand rightly the war that we are in, that we understand rightly the power with which we fight in this war. We have seen so far that as God's children, the enemy does not ultimately have authority or dominion over us, that we belong to Christ, our life is secure in him, but that the enemy can influence us as we give him ground or opportunity in our lives. If you'll remember the illustration I gave you of thinking of your life as a house. Now, the title deed to the house belongs to Jesus. Your life belongs to him, and no one can steal you from his hands. But whenever we cling to sin or we fail to believe God's truth, it's like unlocking and cracking open a door into the house. It gives the enemy an opportunity. It gives him space to put his foot in, to establish a, a foothold. It gives him ground in our lives to bring destruction in our own lives, in our home, and within our church. And so what we're doing beginning this morning and for the next two Sundays is we're going to look at three primary ways in which we can give up ground to the enemy. Three avenues through which the enemy can gain an opportunity in our lives to bring destruction in our own life, in our home, and within our church. And the first of the three ways that we're going to consider this morning is the issue of pride. Pride. Pride in your heart will open you up to the deceptive and destructive influences of our spiritual adversary. And I want to simply establish two major points about pride with you this morning, and we're going to build quite a bit under each point. The first truth I want to establish is this. Number one, pride is a home base from where the enemy attacks. Pride is a home base from where the enemy attacks. And before we even get to the James 4 text, I want you to for just a moment consider the origin of the enemy, his beginnings. 
We know from scripture that Satan uh, was an angelic being who led some sort of, 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 of insurrection or rebellion in, in, in heaven wanting to supplant God and the throne of God and the glory of God. And as a result, he was, he was cast out of the heavenly places. This is referenced in 2 Peter chapter 2 in Jude verse 6. It's also possibly being described in the book of Isaiah chapter 14. And in the Isaiah 14 text, it's clear that pride is very much the focus. I want you to see this passage out of Isaiah 14. It says, you said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. I will make myself like the most high. What was the sin in Satan's heart that, that prompted the rebellion? It was pride. The original sin in all of creation was the sin of pride. I will make myself like the most high. Of all the names he could have used for God, he chose this name, the Most High, it's El Elyon. It's a name for God that literally means the sovereign one who reigns. He wanted to rule. He wanted to reign in the place of God. He wanted to run his own life. He wanted to be in the position of El Elyon. He wanted to be like God in control, but not in character. And guys, this is the essence of pride. Pride is allowing self to sit on the throne of your life rather than Christ. Pride is allowing self to sit on the throne of your life rather than Christ. Pride says in the heart, I want to control my life. I want to be the judge of what is right and wrong. I want to be the arbiter of what is true and false. That, that I, I might acknowledge God as sovereign over the world in word, but in function, I will rule my own life. I will be my own El Elyon. I will be the most high of my life. This is the heart of, of pride. It was the enemy's original sin. And guys, it is a home base from where the enemy attacks humanity still today. If you remember, I said in the very first message on spiritual warfare that the goal of all spiritual warfare is the preeminence of Jesus. Satan does not want Christ to be preeminent. And so he looks for any ounce of pride, any area over which we are struggling to allow Jesus to be supreme that he can exploit in order to supplant Jesus as preeminent in our life. Okay, I, I cannot emphasize strongly enough how significant an issue pride is. 
and the arena of spiritual warfare. Pride will give the enemy a wide open door into your life, into your home, into our church to bring destruction. And to establish that point even further, let's go to the James 4 text, okay? James 4. And I want you to pick up with me beginning in verse 6. I want to read verses 6 and 7 here. It says, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, all right? So what James is saying here is that humility, the the way that we humble ourselves before God, is by submitting to God, bringing ourselves under the authority of God. And he's saying that in this context in contrast to the heart of pride, You see, the heart of pride resists the authority of God. Remember the definition of pride. Pride is allowing self to sit on the throne of your life. You are resisting the authority of God. And and, and what James says here in the text, and he's quoting Proverbs 3, he says, when we resist God's authority in our life, God resists us. Meaning that he cuts off the grace that supplies joy and peace and patience and the strength that we so desperately need. Passively, God's resistance means that he cuts off that grace and actively, it means that he brings discipline into our lives, a discipline with the aim of restoration. You see, when we, when we resist God, placing ourselves on the throne of our lives, we put ourselves in a very dangerous position. And so God's divine resistance is intended as an act of love to bring us back to a place of protection and safety and joy, which is found under the authority of God. Again, I want to make sure you see the, the, the logical development, the connection between these exhortations that James is giving in these verses. In this context, the way we humble ourselves, he says, is by submitting to God, coming under God's authority. Pride is the opposite. Pride resists God's authority. And what James is saying here is that killing pride, okay, Humbly coming under God's authority is one of the primary ways in which we resist the devil. Remember, the devil is the epitome of pride. He hates the sovereignty of Christ. And he does not want Christ to be sovereign over your life. And so the way that you resist him... (laughs) is by giving Christ supreme reign in your heart. In the same way in which God resists the proud, we are to resist the epitome of pride, the devil, by humbly submitting ourselves to King Jesus in every area of our lives. Guys, this is so important because a lot of times when we think of spiritual warfare, 
We, we think of, you know, casting out demonic spirits and verbally rebuking the enemy. And biblically, there are certainly times and, 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 and places for that. But the most fundamental way, the most foundational way that we resist, that we stand strong against the enemy is simply by killing pride in our lives every day and in every area, joyfully bringing ourselves under the authority of Jesus, giving him supremacy, giving him preeminence in our lives. Now, do you know why the enemy wants to lure you into a place of pride or keep you in a place of pride? I want you to consider what pride produces. What, what, what does pride produce? We, we know that pride produces all kinds of destruction, right? Like Proverbs 16, 18 says that pride comes before destruction. Now you think about it, when you, when you get behind the steering wheel of your own life in pride, I'm calling the shots here. It is like putting an eight-year-old boy behind the wheel of a bulldozer. It's incredibly dangerous. It brings destruction. It wrecks havoc in your own life, and not just in your own life, but in the lives of those around you. And this is exactly what the enemy wants. The enemy, Jesus told us the enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy and this is exactly what pride does. Pride destroys. And, and, and listen, this is important. One of, one of the primary ways that pride brings destruction is by bringing division. Okay? Stirring up contention in our relationships. This is the context of James 4. James had been up to this point dealing with Christians who were fighting with one another. Go back up to verse 1 of chapter 4. The rhetorical question that he begins the chapter with. What is the source of wars and fights among you? These Christians that James is writing, they're fighting with each other. They're quarreling with one another. And at the root of their contention is their pride. Because I would argue that at the root of all our contention and our relationships is at least to some degree pride. Like you show me contention in a marriage, you show me contention in the home, you show me contention in a church, and you, you pull back those layers enough, I promise you, you will find at its root And it's, listen, it's because these relationships in the home, in marriage, in the church, the unity, the harmony, the oneness of those relationships, it's because they were created, they were established to give glory to God. That's the purpose of the relationships, is to glorify God. That's why the enemy wants to divide and destroy and bring contention, he hates God's glory. He does not want God to be glorified in your home, in your relationships, in the church. And so he's always looking for the open door of pride in your life, knowing that pride produces division 
and division impedes God's glory. Pride is a home base from where the enemy attacks. Now, before I, we, we go on to the second major point here, I, I want to I pause here. I want to give you some symptoms of pride. <laughs> because sometimes it's hard to know when I've got a pride issue going on in my heart. It's hard to detect pride at times in our own life. Uh, and so I want to give you some symptoms to be on the lookout for that there might be a pride issue going on in your heart. I actually got these from... Um, the 18th century American theologian Jonathan Edwards who wrote an essay on undetected pride and he talked about symptoms of pride. So I want you to think about these. Here here are a few symptoms of, of pride. First, fault finding is a symptom of pride. You see, pride filters out the sin that we are able to see in our own life And it magnifies the faults and deficiencies that we can see in other people. And and, and so if if, if you regularly notice the faults of other people without grieving over your own sin and your own life, this is a symptom of pride. Pride. A harsh spirit is another symptom of pride. Those struggling with pride tend to treat other people's flaws and sins with contempt and irritation, a harsh and condemning spirit because they have lost sight of the grace that they require. And so if you're, if you're regularly angry at the world, irritated with other people, there's likely a pride issue at play there. The symptom of superficiality, where we are overly concerned with our image and our persona and how other people perceive us, what they think about us. Listen, where our personal brand means more to us than the aroma of a crucified Christ exuding through us. It's a symptom of pride. Defensiveness is a symptom of pride. You see, true humility isn't knocked into a defensive posture when challenged or rebuked. Edwards said that for the humble Christian, the more the world is against him, the more silent and still he will be. Being attention hungry is a symptom of pride. Oh, pride, pride craves attention, right? Pride craves respect. Pride craves honor from other people. Pride needs to be heard. Pride needs to be noticed. Pride needs to be acknowledged in the room. Pride gets really upset when the spotlight is on others. And then finally, neglecting other people is a symptom of pride. Pride is far too consumed with self to give thought or care to those around them. Pride claims, listen, my life is hard enough. 
I can't concern myself with, with the needs of others. Frankly, my life is worse than others. They ought to be concerned for me. <laughs> These are all symptoms of a pride problem in our hearts. And church, this leads us to the second major point I want to I establish this morning. And it leads us to the final three verses of our text, which is this. Number two, we kill pride by drawing near to God. We kill pride by drawing near to God. I want you to look at the first half of verse 8. James goes on to say this. He says, okay, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, when you think of drawing near to God, probably what comes to your mind is something like what we're doing this morning, like worship. Whatever comes to your mind when you think of worship drawing near to God through, 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 through worship. And that is certainly, that is certainly a, a way in which we draw near to God. I don't think it's the precise meaning that James has in mind here when he's talking about drawing near to God in this context. In this context, the meaning is clarified by the exhortations that come around it, okay? So let's look at the exhortations that become before and after this call to draw near to God. First, and most foundationally, the way we draw near to God is by submitting to God's authority over every area of life. Okay? Guys, this is the entire context leading into verse 8. These Christians had been resisting God's authority over their lives. And so the remedy to that pride is to draw back near to God by coming back under God's authority. Okay, to, to, to illustrate the point I think James is making here, I want you to think of the prodigal son, okay? Why was the prodigal son so far from God? He had become so far from God because of pride. He said, I want to live under your authority. I want to go my own way. I want to do my own thing. And that pride took him far from God. And so what did it look like for him to draw near to his father he had to humble himself right he had to humbly come back under the authority of the father and receive the father's care protection and authority we we, we kill pride by drawing near to god and drawing near to god begins with humbly bringing ourselves underneath his authority, submitting to his authority over our lives, which is why submission to God is such a central theme in this text on pride. And guys, if I could, I, I want to I build on this, this point for, for just a moment, okay? Because this idea of recognizing authority, submitting to authority, coming under authority, this is a concept that goes directly against the values and contours of our culture. Whether it's the authority of a local church, authority in the home, or the authority of government within a nation, our culture sees authority inherently as dangerous and oppressive and something to be resisted. But according to the scriptures, 
authority is not inherently dangerous. To the contrary, authority, the authority of God is a blessing. It's a gift. Living under God's authority is a place of peace and care and protection. I'll give you, I'll give you a, just one biblical example of this. It's kind of an odd one, but it, it clarifies this so well. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There's a church discipline issue going on in the church in Corinth. A guy is caught in gross sexual immorality. And what did Paul say to the church? He says, you need to remove this member from your midst. Remove him out from under the authority of the church. He had resisted the authority. Remove him, and remember what Paul says, delivering him to the enemy for the destruction of his flesh. You see, as long as this fellow was under the authority of the church within the context of the covenant community of Christ, there was in that place a a, a protection, a spiritual uh, protection that, that guarded him. But to be removed out from under that place of authority and to be put out here is to allow the enemy to more freely have a destructive impact in his life. To be under God's authority is a place of protection and safety. And the scriptures teach us that God has established authorities in the world, right? In the church, home, in, in nations, through, 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 through governments. The authorities that God establishes in the world are intended by God for our good. To care for us provide protection for us. Take uh, Romans chapter 13, for example. Government is referred to as a servant of God for our good, an established structure that God intends to protect citizens. Or or think about the home, parents having authority over their children. That is an authority structure that is intended for the children's protection and good. Now, do earthly authorities sometimes become corrupt? Yes, this is the result of sin in humanity. And so is authority sometimes abused, resulting in harm toward those that are under authority? Yes. And and when this happens, those authorities must be held accountable and those in danger because of the abuse of authority must be removed and protected because there is no absolute authority on earth. All earthly authority is delegated authority from God and is to be appropriated under the authority of God. Okay, so so to be clear, God's will is not that we remain in a situation where we will be constantly abused by an authority structure that was intended for our care or for our protection. But we cannot allow the fact that authority is sometimes abused to make us in our hearts anti-authoritarian. Because this is what the enemy wants. The the enemy wants us not to trust God's authority. 
He wants us to resist God's authority and God's established authority structures on earth. He wants us to feel like the only time, the only way we're going to be happy, the only way that we're going to be safe is if we're on the throne of our lives. If, if we're calling the shots, if we are most high in our life. Because this is the heart of pride. And so the first and most foundational way that we kill pride is by drawing near to God, by submitting to God's authority over every aspect of our lives. This is how we draw near to God. God, you're going to be El Elyon. You're going to be the most high over my life and over my relationships and over my sexuality and over my career choices and over my money and over my time and over every other aspect of my life. You are El Elyon. That, guys, that is the heart posture that removes any opportunity and ground that the enemy can have in our lives. Okay, so we, so we kill pride by drawing near to God, and this begins with submitting ourselves to God. The second way we draw near to God is by turning away from anything that does not please him. Okay, turning away from anything that does not please him. This is the last half of verse 8. He says, draw near to God. This is verse 8, and he will draw near to you. Then he says, cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The language he's using here is one of thorough repentance. Like whatever, whatever action, whatever attitude that in pride we're holding on to that's hindering our communion with God and our fellowship with God, if we are going to kill pride and draw near to God, we have to release those things, turning away from those things. You know, there are, there are times when I, I go into my kids' bedrooms and I see stuff that does not please me, okay? And it's not that I find a bunch of sinful stuff in there. It's just I find a lot of junk in there. <laughs> it's it just become a mess and cluttered with stuff that they don't use, that they don't need, and frankly, some of it, it's just trash. Like, they've got a broken toy, or a part to a toy that's been lost for, for months, or they literally have uh, packaging, like literal trash, packaging that a toy came out of that they're holding on to and it's just it's just it's it's cluttered up the, the, the room and so i've learned that i can't just tell them to go clean the room like i've got to walk with them and i've got to point things out this right here this has got to go <laughs> like you can't hold on to this anymore this over here is starting to smell like you've got to get rid of this right guys there will be times in in, in our lives, when our lives become cluttered up with just stuff that doesn't please God. And some of those things will be inherently sinful behaviors or attitudes or language or thought patterns. Some of those things won't necessarily be in, in, inherently sinful, but things that, that have obtained a place in our lives, and it's just, it's a distraction. It's not, it's hindering, it's impeding our communion with God. And, and, and what Jesus wants to do is he wants to walk through your dirty room and he wants to point out this right here. You got to let go of that. 
And, and then this thing over here, I know, I know it's not inherently wrong or sinful, but man, it's so important to you. You're giving it a place in your life that it's pulling you away from something so much better. It's time to put this away for a while. This is what repentance is. Repentance is allowing Jesus to, to, to order our lives. And this is how we draw near to God so that we're, we're willing to turn away from anything that doesn't please him. It's the ongoing process of repentance. And this is how we draw near to God. Killing pride in our lives. Finally, we draw near to God, number three, by recognizing our desperate need and God's great provision of grace. Recognizing our desperate need and God's great provision of grace. Guys, this is verse nine. You thought verse eight was heavy. Read verse nine. It says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's pretty heavy language, but it's heavy for a reason. These, these, these Christians had lost sight of how desperate they were for God's grace. There was sin in their lives. I mean, all, all of the preceding verses in chapter 4 is about the worldliness of, of these believers that they were holding on to. And of course, there's sin in all of our lives, but the problem was is they weren't broken over their sin. They, they, weren't, they weren't mourning sin in their lives. Instead, they were, they were casual, they were, they, were, they were cavalier, they were quite happy in their sin. And, and, and so James says, listen, your laughter needs to be turned into mourning. You, you need to recognize how desperate you are for God's grace. As this is perhaps the number one reason that pride enters into our lives is that we lose sight of a how much we need God's grace and b how much we have received God's grace like we we typically don't have any problem recognizing the need that other people have for grace but in our self-righteous laughter, we forget how desperate we are in need of grace. And if you want to kill pride by drawing near to God, then we have to consider, we have to dwell, we have to meditate, we have to fill our hearts and minds with an awareness of God's abundant grace. Consider how much grace you need every single day and reflect on the depth of the grace that he has already shown you. And, and this takes us all the way back to the beginning of the text, the beginning of verse six, where he says, but, but he gives greater grace. Isn't that good news? Hey, like up to this point, James had been talking about the severity of their worldliness and sin, but he says in, in verse six, but, but listen, God's grace is greater. He gives a greater grace you see, grace is the great antidote to the venom of pride. You, you draw near to God by recognizing your need for God's grace and believing, believing that he is a God of abundant grace, that our sins, yes, they are many, but his mercy is more, greater grace. 
We kill pride by drawing near to God. What does that look like? It looks like submitting to his authority, turning away from anything that does not please him, and recognizing our desperate need and God's great provision of grace. This is how we kill pride. And church family, this is the fundamental way that we resist the devil.